0: Hello, I'm Fran Scott, and this is How to Build a Railway. For as long as I can remember, I have been so fascinated by science and engineering and our infrastructure. So the bones of society and how it works and makes us what we are. Now, in Britain, a project is underway that could have the most significant impact on the way we move around the country, the way we meet our friends and family, and the way we work in more than a generation. Now, every mega project is an effort to reshape the country in some way. They mobilise billions of pounds of investment, they employ tens of thousands of people to Change a society and move them towards a better future. The latest and largest mega project, perhaps in Britain's history, is High Speed 2. HS2 is the first new railway north of London in over a hundred years. Its first phase will run out from Houston through the northwest of the capital then it'll go 134 miles on to Birmingham. Later phases will see the line split and head into East Midlands and Manchester. It is almost impossible not to have heard of this project. You'll have heard about the reduced journey times, the much-needed capacity increase to the overloaded rail network, and you will have heard about it being this new low-carbon way to travel. But I wanted to understand the reasons why this project is necessary and a bit about the network that it's building upon. And to do this, we have to go back, way back. The story begins 185 years ago, and it starts with the original London to Birmingham Railway.
1: The original London and Birmingham Railway in, in 1838, it opens through to London, into Robert Stevenson, It's regarded as the, the biggest construction site since the pyramids, really.
0: This is Bob Gwynne. He's the associate curator of the National Railway Museum in York, and he has lived and breathed railways all his life. His father was a railway man too, and Bob has three books and many articles, many articles on railways, including one on the links to computer development, which he links to a railway development from 1837. Now, Robert Stevenson, who he mentions, was the son of the famous George Stevenson, the engineer of the Liverpool to Manchester Railway, and that opened in 1830. And it was the world's first intercity railway. George had worked on the first public railway to use steam locomotives, the Stockton to Darlington Railway, which opened five years earlier in 1825. The Liverpool to Manchester opened in 1830 and Railmania took Off, an industrial Britain had an appetite for freight. But things were not all rosy.
1: The demand was so high for passengers when they opened it that they couldn't run a freight train for several months, even though that was what they'd built the railway for.
0: And it was exactly the same for the London to Birmingham line eight years later. This project, which was on the scale of the pyramids, was immediately swamped with passenger demand as well as the freight demands of this beating heart of this new industrial economy.
1: It would have started off with a lot of passenger demand and then, given that Birmingham was a major manufacturing centre and London, even at that stage, is a growing Metropolis, freight would have been a, a close second. And the lithographs of the period show the, uh, the range of traffic, quite happily, show freight trains, passenger trains, you know, cattle trains.
0: The railways changed everything. Before the Stevensons, cattle drovers painstakingly moved their herds from the Scottish Highlands to feed a growing and ravenous capital. That life was over, as more railheads were established to quickly transport goods from all over to central hubs. New diets were enabled, but it wasn't all just about food.
1: All sorts of things you never knew you needed, from you know umbrellas to hat stands to whatever, and they're, they're all being made all over the place. And you get a bit of specialism, don't you? You get the wool from West Yorkshire, develops to massive amount you get iron once we get into steel steel from various places in the 1850s onwards and jewelry birmingham nottingham shoes you know and lace the fact of the matter is that those products have got to be moved to where they can be bought and they're moved by rail
0: this easy movement of people and goods meant the good times were here. But the new network had to be all things to all people. And this was not a problem at first, but it was laying the foundations for some of the problems that our modern network faces today. Have you ever been stuck behind a slower train crawling towards your destination?
1: And of course, locomotives are quite underpowered in those days so it has very gentle gradients and that's why you have giant cuttings like tring and so on
0: The famous Licky Incline is a section of the Birmingham to Gloucester Railway that opened 10 years later in 1840, and it is probably the exception that proved the rule. There's a fearsome 2.65% gradient, although to get up it, it did require special heavy-duty locomotives called bank engines to help boost the trains up that gradient. Then there were the scientific limits.
1: Obviously, the... Geography affects the the railway, and there's no science of materials to speak of. So mostly you've got Roman arches, because they know they're strong. They don't really know how strong certain things are, so they over-engineer things. Uh, And then, of course, they don't do too much geological investigation. So, you know, uh, Killsby Tunnel, you know...
0: This is a 2.2-kilometre tunnel near Rugby designed by Robert Stevenson and opened in 1838 as the longest railway tunnel ever built.
1: Lots of uh, ingress from water in there and so on. But they have to find the way round all that.
0: The engineers of the day worked engineering miracles. But they still had to work with the constraints of the day, And that means we are left with inefficient, meandering routes, leading to slow travel and capacity issues. If you look at a map of the British railways, the majority of the network sticks to low-lying regions. But with all that said, in 1838, the London and Birmingham Railway is complete. And with it, the first intercity line is built into London.
1: It makes its grand entrance into Euston, famously with its, its own sort of triumphal arch to access the station. And of course Euston, at that stage, Euston Road, is the bypass for London. It's just outside Regency London, Euston. So it doesn't come any closer to the river. It just stops there. Effectively, it stops on London bypass at Euston. And it's the first major arterial route and it means you, you're starting to get that connectivity across uh, the country. And by that stage, of course, both George Stevenson, the uh, you know, original um, engineer for Liverpool Manchester, and his son, Robert, are busy with lots of different schemes. And George, at one stage, is involved with the uh, Lesser and Swannington Railway
0: which opened for coal and passengers in 1832, notably including a tunnel that was over a mile or 1.6 kilometres in length.
1: When they're developing that, somebody says to him, uh, well, what gauge should it be? And he basically says, well, four foot eight and a half uh, standard gauge. And they say, well, why? There's no railway anywhere near us. He said, basically says, yes, but there will be. So the connectivity was always part of the plan.
0: And it did connect. Europe was in absolute turmoil after the Napoleonic era and the railways proved not just a safe store for capital, but an incredibly lucrative one. The railways expanded and this foresight to stick to standard gauge meant that there was the same spacing between the two rails and it meant that the network was compatible across the entire country.
1: The early returns on the Liverpool and Manchester and bonkers is like ten percent per annum. so if you've got any spare cash, you're likely to throw it into the railway schemes because the demand for travel is very clearly there. The demand for moving goods and people and services it's all there.
0: And there is just no competition for the railway. And it's not just major investors. The Bronte sisters own shares with their brother Branwell, who was also the assistant clerk at Sorby Bridge railway station.
1: Anybody who's got any money at all throws it into the railways until, of course, the bubble bursts.
0: And the bubble bursts with the panic of 1847. A stock market bubble has been inflated by over-optimistic speculation in the railways, beyond realistic marketability. After that, people take a long, cold look at further developments. But by that time, large amounts of the network had been built, so it's hard to stop the momentum. Communities want to be joined up to the national infrastructure. And businesses want to connect factories to the trade network throughout Britain and out to the empire.
1: Well, the railways remain ambitious right up until the First World War. because the First World War, two things happened in the First World War. One is the internal combustion engine is, is rapidly developed. And the other is the Royal Navy starts switching to oil.
0: The rise of the motor car had begun. And as far as the railway was concerned, Pandora's box had been opened. Larger and straighter roads were built, and the railways began to hemorrhage freight and money. By the middle of the 1950s, the government faces a supposed transport monopoly that cannot cover its costs.
1: There's a lot of questions about, and people like Lord Cherwell, who's an advisor to Churchill, say, well, you know, by the 70s, people will be flying their own helicopters around the country. They don't need the railways.
0: This launched a big debate about whether the railways are Victorian technology, which was short-lived as the UK opened its first motorway, the Preston Bypass, in 1958. Outside of London and the South East, the railways would be an afterthought for the following decades. turns out, even for Lord Chirwell, the scientific advisor to the Prime Minister at the time, predicting the future was too much. We are now over half a century later, and I don't know about you, but I certainly do not have a helicopter parked in my driveway. Road transport does, of course, have a place in a modern transport system, but we have a growing population, a growing economy, and a more interconnected world. And all of this has left us with problems. When the first motorway was opened in 1958, Britain had about five million vehicles that were registered to be able to drive on the roads. In that same year, atmospheric carbon measurements were taken at the Mona Lower Observatory in Hawaii for the very first time, and this yielded a result of 318 parts per million. By the time High Speed Two was first proposed in 2009. The number of vehicles in Britain had grown to a whopping 34 million, and atmospheric carbon was approaching 400 parts per million. It was time to wake up to this climate emergency and face this challenge of increasing transport capacity and connectivity in a densely populated country. And this meant that major investment in railway was once again back on the table.
2: I started on what was with British Rail as a temporary office junior in 1973. And that was uh, to fill in a year before I went to university. This was before gap years had been invented. But I was too young. But by some accident, I'd taken all my exams early and I needed a year before I got to 18. And I joined um, a, a sort of area office in Leeds.
0: This is Andrew McNaughton, former chief engineer and technical director for the project. He is the person who would eventually lead the team that would draw the line on the map that would become High Speed 2.
2: And did everything from making the tea, fetching the butties. I got out doing real things like um, surveying for drainage for track renewals. And I had no intention of that, I was always going to do civil engineering. I was transfixed with the idea of building large bridges, spanning estuaries, the Humber Bridge, the Severn Bridge, great soaring pieces of engineering. I got fascinated by the railway, today I call it the railway system, how everything fitted in order that you actually ran a train with people or, or with freight.
0: While the railway as a whole was going through its turbulent years and the car was king, this time at British Rail gave young Andrew the opportunity to do lots of different things. He designed his first bridge at the age of 19.
1: It's a
2: very ugly bridge. Uh, you can still see it it's Bridge 27 at Dronfield, just south of Sheffield. Um, but it won't win any architectural awards, but it was cheap.
0: They do say engineers can do for a shilling what anyone can do for a pound. But this experience was invaluable, and he eventually became the chief engineer of RailTrack, which became Network Rail. That's the public sector body that owns and maintains the country's rail assets.
2: And I stayed there until the point when Jeff Hoon got up in Parliament and announced that in a reversal of government policy, he was going to set up a government company to investigate whether there was a case for developing a new railway, which would be, like all new railways, a high-speed railway, between London and the north.
0: And if there was a case, where should a first stage between London and the West Midlands actually go? The company was set up in early January 2009 and was ordered to report back with a preferred route on the 31st of December. HS2 Limited was created in February, and Andrew was seconded over from Network Rail on the 9th of February. Now, Andrew says that major infrastructure projects, they tend to suffer from procrastination, and this leads to more costs and disruption. Every decade, our cities are developing more and putting more obstacles in the way of infrastructure. This project would be different. The network was struggling, the globe was warming, and the country would act. Andrew filled the team with good people, people he had worked with at Network Rail, people he trusted, people who knew the art of the possible and understood what not to do on a rail project. And they set to work, creating the first new railway to the north of England in over 100 years. To understand the decisions they made, it's important to understand the context they were working within.
2: Let's just rewind to the situation in 2000 and early 2009. The country was in the middle of the global uh, financial crisis, recession. So a whole part of people were saying, why on earth do we need a new railway? You know, we, we've got, there's no money, um, as people can't afford to travel. So that was the kind of macro climate. we just finished West Coast upgrade.
0: This is the line to Manchester and Glasgow, and the project, which was called the West Coast Mainline Route Modernisation, ran from 1998 to 2009. It attempted to allow faster and more frequent trains without shutting the line completely and without a total replacement.
2: And it had been a thoroughgoing mess. We spent eight years never running a train on a Saturday or a Sunday, two of the busiest days of the week. But putting every tens of thousands of people in buses in order to rebuild the West Coast line. It had been estimated at two billion pounds at the time, and it cost nine billion. And that was de scoped from 13. We all said at the time, including in government, never again will you try and do open heart surgery on a marathon runner mid-race because that's what we were doing to the West Coast Main Line. The busiest route in the country for freight, for commuters, for long distance passengers, and we were rebuilding it every week for eight years. It was a nightmare. We spent more money compensating train operators than we did on materials. Never again, never again. If we're going to do something about the uh, capacity and the future of the railway running north from London, it has to be a new railway.
0: So. A new railway, then, with the initial route running from London to the West Midlands.
2: Why London and the West Midlands? Because the capacity of the existing transport systems, not just rail, the railway, the M40, the M1, were maxing out and they were already congested, all of them.
0: The prediction was that by the mid-2020s, these routes would be holding back the economy of the country. And as an immediate priority, a railway to the north had to address the looming capacity issues of London and the Midlands. HS2's business case was about capacity improvements first and foremost. There are other really important benefits, such as decarbonisation, but as a transport link, it is a capacity bump. Now, in subsequent years, economic analyses have become more sophisticated and more likely to emphasise these broader benefits in the business case. And acknowledged or not, they are there. There are the three Cs of HS2, and they are capacity, connectivity and carbon. And only then is there speed.
2: If you're building a new railway, you might as well build it to go fast and do something different. To what's already there because it doesn't actually cost much more to build a fast railway than a slow railway (laughs) you know a bit but not massively so and in building a fast railway you bring people closer together
0: and the third objective was reliability and the growing issue of climate resilience
2: reliable in terms of people literally relying on it punctuality if it was going to be more attractive than any other means of transport and to build a railway designed to meet the challenges of the future, climate change, climate adaptation. So it didn't stop when it got hot, got cold, got wet, got leafy, got whatever. So its engineering standards had to make it fit for the next 100 plus years. So we're not designing for the past, we're designing for the future.
0: And designing fresh for the future turned out to be pretty intimidating.
2: This is the only time in my life I've ever had this privilege, but it's actually a bit scary. We started with the proverbial blank sheet of paper. There was London, bottom right-hand co- <laughs> corner, and there was Glasgow in Edinburgh, the top left. Remember, this is not a north-south railway. I love saying to people, just remember Glasgow, in terms of latitude, is, is 5 to 8 miles west of Swansea. Edinburgh is west of Bristol. This is going northwest. If you draw a straight line to Glasgow from London, it goes through Manchester. And Birmingham is just off to one side.
0: All of the things being equal, a straight line gives the cheapest and most efficient option for any route. And with a string of major cities effectively on that straight line, Andrew and his team's job was not to demonstrate that they could create the best route.
2: If you're going to defend it in Parliament, And you're going to take people's property, and you're going to affect the environment. You've got to demonstrate, not necessarily it's the best route, but it's the least worst route. Everybody wrote in, it's an amazing number of middle-aged men in this country who spend their evening drawing lines on maps. We captured every idea that had gone on from previous studies, uh, from network rails and strategic planning, but actually from members of the public.
0: The studies yielded 104 different variations of routes. Now, this isn't 104 completely different routes, but we're talking about variations.
2: We split the problem down into basically five sections. First section, where do we go in London?
0: The remit said that they had to connect the Thames Valley and Heathrow to Crossrail, which is now the Elizabeth Line. And if the country was to invest this capital, the rail had to serve as many people as possible. This would be no vanity project.
2: The second was, how do you get through the Chilterns? Because you can't go round the west of the Chilterns because it's co with the Cotswolds.
0: Two areas of outstanding natural beauty. Putting massive Victorian cuttings through protected landscape was unthinkable, while going round it was an excessive detour.
2: The third was then what you call the open country between uh, north of the Chilterns and basically the approaches to the West Midlands.
0: Centuries and millennia-old villages, sensitive biodiversity and agriculture.
2: The fourth was Birmingham itself, because it is the second city. And the fifth was, and this is part of a wider network. What should the shape of that wider network be?
0: This meant coordinating with local transport authorities, business representatives, and other development stakeholders. It was not up to HS2 how Birmingham or London should develop in the future. There were arguments that the stations and approaches should be entirely underground, with some pointing at the central cross rail stations, but these misunderstood the sheer scale of a high-speed rail station.
2: A terminal station is going to be, when you've included the approach tracks, about a mile long. And it's going to be not two platforms wide, but 10 or 12 platforms wide. This is a hole in the ground at the size of about 27 football pitches. Really? And when you look under London, it's an absolute warren of tubes for gas, for water, electricity, and of course London Underground. So we concluded that it was technically possible to build the whole thing underground but it would probably cost more than a national debt and take forever or to use the phrase of a very well-known civil engineer at the time that would be a bold decision
0: euston was chosen as a terminus station because dropping people in the london suburbs would discourage the use of the railway the route then runs underground to old oak common out through willsden following the easy geography that led earlier generations of engineers to site the Grand Union Canal there. The route wound up the country, curving continuously to avoid impacting the local people and environment. In fact, there would be very few bits of straight line. Every metre was agonised over.
2: There were two or three places where you could move the route further away from somewhere. But you know what? You moved it closer to somewhere else.
0: It was decided that the minimum curve radius, so basically how tight the corners would be, would be set to 7.2 kilometers for unrestricted high-speed running and a little bit less for slower approaches into London. Now, the team could have tightened this further, but it made little difference to the impacts of the track. Plus, a more generous, gentle curve reduces the wear on the track and the operational maintenance requirements. You don't want to run a system at its engineering limits if you want to build it to last. There were also special areas of the route that were selected for extra environmental protection, and these were tunnelled. And there are 100 kilometres of tunnel that are planned on the route so far, including the route beyond Birmingham and up to Crewe. And the main tunnels are the one at Euston, which is 7.2 kilometres, Northall at 13.5, the Chiltern Tunnel at a whopping 16 kilometres, Long Itcherton Wood at 1.6, and Bromford at 5.6. There are also a number of cotton cover tunnels in certain key locations. And each of these tunnels is a mega project in its own right and a story for another day.
2: Birmingham was the most interesting thing, from my point of view. After 180 years of railway, Birmingham's only good connections by rail were to London. Everything pointed south. All the existing station. The good burgers of Birmingham said, we want you to build a new station uh, alongside the, the existing one, New Street Station.
0: New Street Station being Birmingham's main modern and city centre station.
2: We pointed out how big a new station would be. We had the pictures of Stratford International, for example, which was built just before the Olympics. And we pointed out, if, and if you put that on top of Birmingham, there's no city centre left. And this, this was a point of, hmm, can you build it underneath? No, it's too expensive. Can you take over New Street Station? Yes, if you build another station somewhere else for all the commuters. None of this made any sense whatsoever.
0: Then there was a lightbulb moment. Birmingham could be connected to the northeast and northwest just as well as it was connected to London if the city's original eastern station were redeveloped. Birmingham Curzon Street would be reborn. This would be supported by an upline station called Interchange, which would then link passengers to Birmingham Airport, local tram network, and the NEC. At the time, Curzon Street itself was decrepit, surrounded by car parks on rough ground in a region of Birmingham that had not been developed since the Second World War. It was hoped that High Speed 2 would bring a new renaissance to Eastern Birmingham. Andrew and his team set out to design the first stage of the new rail network and to report back to government by the end of the year.
2: And that's what we achieved at five o'clock on December the 31st. And press send.
0: And the delivery of the largest infrastructure project in Europe began. If only it were that simple. Andrew spent the next year in and out of offices, justifying every metre of the route to first one and then another Secretary of State. Nevertheless, the momentum had begun and things did begin to change.
3: Hi, I'm Andy Street, mayor of the West Midlands.
0: Andy thinks strategically about Birmingham's position in the UK and with HS2. Here is a new map, one that is very favourable towards Birmingham.
3: We will be incredibly well connected uh, not just with London, but also with Manchester in the northwest, and uh, with Nottingham, and then ultimately on to Leeds and the north east. So it puts us right at the centre of what I think will be the hundred years new transport system. So that means if you are an inward investor thinking about where you want to locate, and you've got a relatively loose business, you are very likely to say. RB at the very centre of the new transport network. And we've seen that in some of the inward investment decisions that have been made.
0: Historically, Britain has suffered one of the largest regional imbalances in the developed world.
3: So it's definitely true that obviously Britain has had one of the world's most successful cities, London, and no one's going to take anything away from that. But at the same time, all the other major cities have probably underperformed. Now, one element of that has been the investment into transport and infrastructure in other cities.
0: Older cost-benefit models have directed spending to where it offers the most return. Perhaps, obviously, that's what you're going to do. It does seem obvious, but it's self-reinforcing. Spending adds value, which attracts more spending. Now, when it comes to levelling up, levelling up is charged with political implications, but there has to be a move to invest more in regions outside of London. And some of the greatest relative benefits of HS2 will come beyond Birmingham, where the travel times have not advanced from the Victorian era. And then there's going to be the investment that will come as a result of this new investment.
3: This is not about doing down London. This is about doing up other places getting a better balance now part of that is uh, making the most of our central location to do trade with and you know it's a lesson of history over thousands of years if if you're easily connected you will do more business together. But I think it goes a lot further than that, actually, because it's actually about uh, what businesses, what type of business going to be based here, what skills are developed here for those businesses. So we see the advent of the financial services sector here. We see advanced manufacturing. We see health tech. So they've got to be part of this. But it, And I think there's, well, a social dimension to it as well.
0: Birmingham is the youngest major city in the UK. When it comes to Birmingham, Andy says that it's the city that looks most like the country's future makeup. He says that hardwiring rail travel into this society could have additional benefits over this coming century. Someone also thinking about how to impact the way we do things in the future is Mark Thurston. He's the CEO of High Speed 2 Limited.
4: One of the steps I had to take to get this job was to meet the Secretary of State, who at the time was Chris Grayling. So we had a big sort of a sort of set piece in his office in Westminster. And he said to me, How long are you going to do this job for? Because we really need someone who's going to be on the stick with it and be on the first train. And I said to him, You know, to be given the opportunity to potentially finish my career in this role. And create what would be a new railway for the country having started my career sort of working on the underground and i said to him there's a sort of symmetry around that's where i started and then all these years later you get given the opportunity to lead the organization that's going to build a new railway how could you not how could you not you know
0: mark joined the organization in 2017 A few weeks after phase one between London and the West Midlands was approved by Parliament and given royal assent. What he had to do was immediately shape it from a studies and preliminary works organisation to one that would actually deliver this mega project. Now, this first meant that he had to set a culture and the question of values was immediately put to him.
4: We have four values as an organisation. Organisations have a sort of sense of purpose and a mission, but we have these four values. And I was asked earlier on, what do you want to do with the values? I said, what do we do with them today? And they said, well, not very much. These things are sort of like posters on the wall, but they don't really come. So we, and I'd come from an organisation in CH2M that was employee owned, had a very sort of family type, very connected sort of pastoral culture for the organisation because it was in, it was owned by the the employees. And i had really, and I often referred to it as the, sort of biggest small company I'd ever worked for, because you know twenty-three thousand people around the world, but it really felt connected. You all felt part of this big CH2M family.
0: The organization's core values are respect, leadership, integrity, and safety. And building on these values, Mark wanted to focus on this idea of family, a collaborating organization.
4: If we can harness all this and somehow sort of bring this to life across the organisation, we could really do something quite special here. And I I took the view that my job as the CEO was to create an environment where, with the right calibre of people, we create an environment where people can be their best selves and do their best work. And if I can do that, I can do no more.
0: This stretches up the supply chain as well. And something that I have actually seen firsthand is the HS2 is pushing the industry to innovate
4: and there is an opportunity to move the industry forward on the back of HS2 that is not just frankly an opportunity it's an obligation and if we miss the opportunity to innovate to drive skills and capability to leave a legacy that goes way beyond the sort of what crossrail and say the olympics did which were very important projects but they tend to be you know they're geographically constrained this is a national endeavor and I made the point to the surprise that, you know, stick with me on this because if we embrace the opportunity for the industry and the sector that HS2 presents, then I think we really could change things forever in some areas.
0: Ultimately, this project is about the future of the country. It's an attempt to reshape Britain to better serve its people and to deal with the challenges of the modern world.
4: HS2's place in Britain of the future is an interesting one. I mean, I've been lucky enough to travel on the high-speed system in China and Japan and Italy and Spain. And when you see, particularly in Japan, the way the Shinkansen system has sort of redefined their economy, and I think that's the bit that's sort of in my mind always been sort of unwavering in that as much as we get buffeted and there's, you know, we will always divide opinion until it's open. Crossroad divided opinion, even particularly in the last few years with all the troubles it's had. But look at the way people now are embracing the Elizabeth line as a game changer for travelling across the city, but also the way it's putting capacity in the existing tube systems. So you're seeing less crowded central line trains or district line or whatever it might be. HS2 will sort of redefine the economic and the transport geography of this country
0: Andy Street says that the critical aspect from the national perspective is simply getting planes out of the skies and cars off the roads.
3: So just take a simple thing like London to Manchester flying. I mean, you just stand back. It's nonsense in a small country. We should be, be travelling by train, but there needs to be a reliable, clean service. Enter H S too. So there is really an environmental case when you look at the long term uh, debate here. I know there's disruption in the short term. I know people are worried about trees being cut down, but hopefully they will be replaced many times over. But you've got to see this as a commitment overall to our net zero ambitions.
0: For Andrew McNaughton, easy travel is a fundamental measure of society's development.
2: Imagine if we'd never built the M1. We would be stuck in the 18th century. We built the M1, we got into the 20th century. We're not gonna build new motorways in the 21st century. We need to compete in the world. This is about developing the future. This is about a future where the natural way of connecting cities is by this environmentally sensitive, very low carbon, very efficient transport system. travel is essential. Without travel, there is no economy. There is no social. We're basically back in the dark ages.
0: Against this, we are building HS2, the first major new railway investment north of London in a century. Next time on How to Build a Railway. We can't build the railway until all the environmental works are undertaken.
3: We had over a thousand archaeologists working. A single site can have, you know, 10,000 individual
0: context records created. It might be the biggest archaeological project ever.
3: Once you've started doing these kind of projects, it's very hard to go back into doing little bitty things. You really want to be a part of something huge. I actually got a text message with a picture. An hour later, I got another phone call
0: saying you really will not believe it this time. Your host has been me, Fran Scott. Thanks to our guests, Andrew McNaughton, Bob Gwynn, Andy Street and Mark Thurston. To find out more about HS2, go to hs2.org.uk or follow us on social media at HS2LTD.